The reading today is taken from Matthew 11 and verse 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I want to talk to you about coffee. Uh, coffee is big business. Why do I say that? Because in 2019, when the coffee shops were open, uh, normal for the whole year, do you know how much was spent on coffee in the UK, whether that was in uh, Starbucks or Nero or Costa or somewhere else? 10.1 billion pounds is the total revenue that coffee, which is a big business, brought to the United Kingdom. It's not just going out to your favorite coffee shop when you're allowed to do that is the source of income to that huge amount of money. It's also coffee in the home. Don't know if you're an instant person that uh, prefers to have instant coffee, you know, boiling up your kettle and that kind of thing. Or if you're someone who likes the convenience of an espresso, who doesn't love an espresso machine with the ease and comfort of putting in a little capsule. But here on the screen is the Sage Oracle Touch. This is the daddy of all home uh, bean to cup coffee machines. This will set you back 2,000 pounds, the Sage Oracle Touch. It's quite a machine. However you choose to take your coffee, cleanliness is the battleground. Cleanliness is the battleground. A recent study that I read this week has said that the coffee machine, whether it be the water reservoir or the frother, the coffee machine, if you have a, a machine at home, is the fifth germiest place in your home. Germiest is a technical term. It's the fifth germiest place in your home. Over time, yeast and mold and scale build up in the coffee machine, whether it be the water reservoir at the back or the frother at the side or the nozzle where you put the coffee in or receive it from. It's the fifth germiest place in the whole of your home. You see, coffee is not just supposed to wake me or to wake you up. You're supposed to enjoy the experience. And to do that, the study says, you need to make sure your coffee machine is clean. You need to make sure it's descaled regularly. You need to make sure you clean it with vinegar or some other appropriate substitute and substance so that it's as clean and as healthy and as enjoyable an experience as it's supposed to be. You're supposed to enjoy your coffee. Now it's exactly the same with our relationship with God. Over time, there are many thoughts and factors, some harsh truths that we collect that scale up and impact our relationship and how we think about God. There are many things that get in the way that stop our enjoyment of who God is, not who he's meant to be, but who he actually is, who he has revealed himself to be. I mean, we can have lots of wrong thoughts about God. 
that scale up our relationship, that get in the way, that make it not as enjoyable as it's meant to be. We can think that God is harsh or demanding. We can think that God is maybe just perpetually disappointed with us. We can think that God is distant from us. We can think that he's impossible to please. We can think that he's ready to punish and slow to listen to us. We can think that God is quick to condemn and not ready to console. All these things fur up, scale up, get in the way of our relationship with God and our enjoyment of the God who is revealed to us in the Bible. These harsh thoughts that cloud our judgment. So if we think wrongly about God, then we will never trust him as he deserves to be trusted. If we think wrongly about God, we'll never love him and respond to him in a way that his heart has revealed that he is loving and trustworthy. If we think wrongly about God, we'll never obey him as he deserves. And he's meant to be obeyed because of who he's revealed himself to be. So it's really important. Not that we just have a clean coffee machine or a clean kettle if we enjoy tea. It's really important that we enjoy God and therefore we need to see who he has revealed himself to us and his son, especially at the start of a new year. Over time, if left unchecked, our understanding of God gets furred up, gets scaled up. We have a caricature of who we think God is. And so we need to see who he is at the start of a new year. We need to go back to the Bible. We need to pray that God, by his spirit, will refresh us, will cleanse us, will descale on our wrong misconceptions. And that we get a clear understanding by the spirit of God as he opens up the word of God to us. We really get a clear understanding of the heart of God revealed to us in Christ, his son. That's what we need more than anything else at the start of 2021 so that we see afresh that God is someone worth living for as Christians. And so we need to see his heart. That's the first point I want us to think about. We need to see the heart of Jesus. We need to see the heart of Jesus. We spent some time in the book of Matthew last year. We're gonna finish up the book of Matthew in the months of February, March, and up to Easter time this year. So some of this is familiar territory to us, but Christmas seems a long time ago for me, maybe for you. And it's only about 10 days ago, but it's just passed. And in the Gospel of Matthew, one of these four eyewitness accounts, Matthew has shown to us the incarnation, the birth of Jesus that we celebrated just 10 days ago in Matthew chapter one. We often reflect on the miraculous, sinless life of Jesus in the middle section of Matthew's gospel. At Easter time, we go to the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 27 and 28, and we celebrate, and rightly so, the wrath-bearing and the atoning death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ as God's rescue mission for a lost and needy world. Those are some of the things that we consider when we meditate on the life, the birth, the once and for all death of King Jesus. And there are thousands of books written over thousands of years of church history about what Jesus has done, what he's achieved in his life, what he's taught through his teaching. Matthew's chapter five to seven is an example of that with the wonderful and challenging Sermon of the Mount. We can see in Matthew chapter two to four about how Jesus understands himself in relation to the Old Testament fulfilling uh, 
or prediction and prophetic word and Jesus' fulfillment of those words, as you see the repeated phrase in Matthews 2, 3 and 4 of it is written. How does Jesus understand his relationship to the Old Testament? Matthew 2 through 4 explains that. We see his teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. But all these books that have been written over thousands of years that explain his work on the cross, his teaching and his life, very few places in all of church history. And let me tell you, only one place in the Gospels explain to us clearly, or do we hear from Jesus's lips or do we hear his own heart open up? Only one place in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospels as a whole do we hear from the lips of Jesus. He explained to us his own heart for us. It's here in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 28 to 30 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's one place in the whole Bible where Jesus, the Son of God, reveals to him, to us. He, he kind of pulls the veil back and he lets us see who he really is. He lets us see his, uh, his heart for us, his DNA for us, his, his essence for us, his passion for us. He does not say this. Jesus does not say that he is austere and demanding in heart. He does not say, like the book of Revelation reveals, that Jesus is exalted and dignified in heart. He does not say that he is joyful and generous in heart. Jesus claims to be and reveals to be gentle and and lowly in heart. He's talking about his heart. He's not talking about his emotions or his affections. He's speaking and describing his very essence, his core, what drives him, his DNA, you could say. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Now, you can see those two words on the screen. The, the definitions are very important. Jesus is gentle. That means Jesus is, is meek, he, he's kind, he's tender, he's not harsh. That's a wrong thought about Jesus. Jesus is not harsh, he's compassionate. He's not ready to snap or volatile at any moment. Jesus is not a fault finder with a clipboard who's getting ready to catch you out when you fall over or when you trip up. It says that Jesus is gentle. It says also that Jesus is lowly. If the first word gentle is kind or meek or tender, lowly, that means humility. Jesus is humble. He's not arrogant. He's not overbearing or demanding. He's not superior. He's accessible. Jesus is approachable. Jesus is welcoming to sinners like you and me. And all of this is really surprising to us by nature. If you look back to verse 27 of Matthew 11, it says this, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son 
and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus knows who he is. He has the amazing, perfect self-awareness. No one can know the Father unless he is revealed to him by the Son. So here is Jesus, full of grace and truth. He's full of passion and zeal for his Father. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to him by his Father. He is the same person that we studied in Revelation with a sword strapped to his side, going out in word, world uh, conquest. He's the, the God who's amongst the churches. He is the God of, of omnipotent power and zeal. And yet, how is, does Jesus choose to describe himself in the only time in the Gospels when he describes his character? As tender, gentle, and as humble, as lowly. He's saying, when you see me, when you get to grips on my character, you have a firm grasp of the character of my father. There's no difference. When you see me, you see the father. When you see the father and understand the father, you see and understand the person of Jesus. There is no difference in our character. Let me prove it to you. Because isn't the Jesus, isn't God of the New Testament loving and the God of the Old Testament full of wrath? No, that's not true. Let me prove it to you. In Exodus 33 and 34, when Moses longs to see and understand his God, he says, God, reveal to me your glory. I need nothing more. I want nothing more than to know you. Show me your glory. Moses asks of that in Exodus 33 and 34. And God in his graciousness says, okay. Stand in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. You can't see me. You can't see my face. No one can see my face and see my glory and live, but I will pass by you. And just when you're expecting God to reveal himself in some uh, creation stopping way, like he does at the beginning of the book of Exodus, where uh, the walls of water in the Red Sea are, are kind of mounted up so God's people can be rescued from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, just when you're expecting God's glory and majesty to be revealed in some firework-like way, how does God reveal himself to Moses, his servant? He reveals it to him, his, he reveals his name, and he says this, Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. God is saying to Moses, this is what you need to understand about me. You've asked to see my glory. Here it is. It's my name. I will show you in my name, my, my very character, my very nature. I am full of compassion. And I am gracious 
and I long to display my mercy to people. I'm not angry all the time. I'm slow to anger. I'm not capricious. If you think I'm capricious, you've got that wrong. I don't fly off the handle. I'm abounding in love. The picture you can see on the screen is of Niagara Falls. That's the image. There's this amazing abundance of water that you can hear if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. We, we once went there and uh, I don't know why we bothered paying for it. You can go in the Angel of the Mist, you get on the boat, you can go into Niagara Falls and you can get close to it. You might as well jump in the bath because you get absolutely soaked. They give you this pitiful cape, but you, you can go there and you feel and hear and see and sense because you're soaked the power of Niagara Falls. The abundance of water that, that never stops. That's the image here. As God reveals his character to Moses, says, I'm abounding. It's almost to say, I'm never ceasing. I have an overflow of love for you. This is my heart, says Jesus. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of my father. Now, that does not mean that Jesus, look at the, chapter 34, look at the book of Revelation. It does not mean that, that God is only love and he's not a God of anger and wrath. God settled measured anger against all that is wrong, all that is sinful. We mustn't just focus on one aspect of God's character at the expense and loss of looking at another. But notice what it is saying. God's default position is that he is a God of abounding in love and his ordinary position is one of mercy. That's what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin has said. God's ordinary, his settled, his regular position is one of mercy and love. His anger has to be provoked. His anger and wrath is not his settled normal character. It says that in Lamentations chapter three. It says this, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfading love. Here's the key verse, Lamentations three, verse 33. For he, God, does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. In other words, as Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan said, God's judgment is his strange work. It's not his natural work. Mercy is more natural to God than his wrath or justice, but both are part of God's character. His mercy flows out of his heart towards his creation without his arm being twisted. It doesn't have to be conjured up. God's mercy and his compassion doesn't need to be provoked in the same way that God's wrath does. And so Moses hears these wonderful words that God is merciful and gracious. He's compassionate. He is abounding in love that doesn't end. This is the natural disposition of the heart of the God of the Bible. When he carries out justice, that he does. It doesn't come from a position of affliction or pleasure, but Jesus and God the Father conduct justice from a kindly and lowly and merciful and compassionate heart. This is our God, Christian friend, at the start of a new year. And notice that's not just God's heart in a static kind of way. God's heart is on the move. God's heart has a direction. It has a it has a purpose. If you've got your Bible, look back at Matthew's chapters eight and into chapter nine. We saw this um, early last year. 
In Matthew 8 and 9, you see the heart of Jesus in action. He, ready for the list, he cleanses a leper. He rescues an outsider. He rescues his disciples as he calms a storm. He heals a paralytic. He raises a girl to life again. He, he delivers a woman from a, an, an endless cycle of bleeding. He gives the blind men back their sight. He heals a mute person who, who can't speak. And he heals a load of people as well. This is the heart of God who is compassionate and tender and lowly. Look at verse 28. Does God's heart go to those who've got it all together, those who've got all their ducks in a row, those who look sound and respectable and upright? No. Verse 28 says, God's heart goes to those who are weary and those who are burdened, those who feel they can't go on, those who admit their faults. Jesus's heart is for you. Those who've put down their mask of respectability and that everything is okay in their homes and in their lives. God's heart is for you. Those who've given up pretending that, that they're, they're okay. And which English person doesn't say that? How are you? We're okay. God's heart is for you when you put down your mask that you're not okay. Jesus says in the gospel and in this verse, the only qualification you need to come to me is that you need to admit that you are needy. That's all you need. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's wrap this in. Let's think about three groups of people. If you are a sufferer, if you're a seeker, if you're a sinner. That word in verse 28, burdened, that means that you are someone who is on their last legs. You're, you're on your knees. You've worked so hard in life. You're at that point of exhaustion. You've got nothing more to give. You're weary. You're depleted. You can't carry on anymore. You don't want to go on anymore. That's you in that verse. So you might be a sufferer. You might be a seeker. You might be a sinner. What do I mean? Perhaps this morning you're a sufferer. You're so worn out, you can't get to the end of today. You've got a long-term illness that will not go anytime soon. You've got no resources for the new year. You've got no resources for the week that started today. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Life is hard and it won't be getting easier anytime soon. Jesus calls to you, come to me. Perhaps you're a seeker. Is there anything more to life than this. I'm fed up with what 2020 has served on my lap. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just got this burden of comparison with people and I'm searching for significance. If you're seeking, Jesus says, come to me. If you're burdened and suffering, come to me. If you're a sinner, Jesus says, come to me. If you're weighed down by guilt, shame, regret, whatever it is, Jesus says, come to me. If you're guilty over what you should have done in your life, if you're guilty about what you have done, Jesus says, come to me. The Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew just put such a load on people. They said, try harder. They said, be better. And Jesus says, no, come to me. Come to me. Nothing has changed from the time of Jesus. Everyone in the world wants us to listen to their message. And it says, try more, do more, be more. And Jesus says it won't work. Come to me. 
It's the heart of Jesus that we come to him today, this year, this week, right now. It's the heart of Jesus. But the second thing is, it's an invitation from the heart of Jesus. It's an invitation from the heart of Jesus. That's, that's point two. Isn't it interesting what Jesus says? Isn't it interesting what Jesus says? Verse 28, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus doesn't say, jump through some hoops and then come to me. Jesus doesn't say, when you measure up, when you're good enough, when you've done enough, when you're better enough, come to me. Jesus says, come to me right now. Come to me with all your mess, with all your junk, with all your mistakes, with all your background. Come to me with all your questions. And in the end, if you come to me, you will find forgiveness. You will find forgiveness. The guilt and the shame will be removed from your shoulders because of the cross. You will find truth. You'll find truth. The righteousness of Jesus shown and demonstrated on the third day in the empty tomb when Jesus gives or receives the big vindication from his father that his death on the cross once and for all has been accepted. You'll find my righteousness. It'll be credited to your account. You can stand before my father blameless, washed clean because of the cross of Jesus come to me. I'll give you a new identity that you could never earn and that you will never lose. Come to me. I'll do absolutely everything Come to me. That's the invitation from verse 28. Think about this under a few points. Come to me, says Jesus. You don't have to wait for the right time to come to Jesus. Now, look, one of the I'm not sure what lockdown we're on. It might be lockdown three. I've lost count. But one of the things I've observed in our home is that we've kind of got to know our children afresh and they're all now kind of trembling and quivering. I'm not going to mention any names, but one of the things I've observed about all of our children, their safety in a group, all of our children, is that they are superb negotiators. I have no idea where they get that from. It must be from their mum. They're kind of like Michelle Barnier from the EU. What a brilliant negotiator. Or like Boris Johnson. What a crazy negotiator. But uh, what I've noticed from our children is that they've become very acute at observing their parents. They know how to negotiate. They know when to ask and when to wait. And when they want to ask for something big, there is the approach, the skill of the approach. There is a, the approach that always includes a compliment. There's also a question. Is there anything I can do for you today? And when that happens, you know that there is a question just around the corner that they want something. They want something big. Jesus says you don't need to wait come now you don't need to get prepared you don't need to do something you can come to me with all your mess with all your confusion with all your regret you're not inconveniencing Jesus to come to him today you don't have to catch him on a good day Jesus is gentle and he's lowly he's approachable and he's welcoming you don't have to wait for an ideal time to come to him you can come to him today whether you're weary needy burdened he'll never cast you out there's no application form there's no need for an interview you can come to him now this heart is most clearly seen in luke 15 it's a very famous passage in the bible it tells the story of the prodigal son a father who had two sons who who went to 
And one of them went to the faraway country, said, I want you dead. He said that in his words. And he says, I want my inheritance now. I'm going to go and spend all I have, all of my inheritance and experience life very soon. The money ran out. The credit card would have bounced. And he found himself in the pigsty. He went out seeking pleasure. He found himself in a place of sin and experienced suffering. And then he came to his senses and he says these words. He says, I'm going to return to my father's house and I'm going to become a slave. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. When we come to the Father, he welcomes us. He runs to us. He's not distant. His arms are not folded. He takes on everything. He provides for everything. And Jesus calls to us all at the start of a new year to come to him for the first time or to come to him afresh. But here's the second thing. Not just come to me. Jesus also said, submit to me. That's in verse 29. Submit to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, says Jesus, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we've seen this before. A yoke is a piece of wood that would be used uh, in an agricultural setting to enable oxen to work together. It's a picture of submission being brought under a yoke of a farmer, under their influence. But notice that Jesus is offering an invitation. He's not forcing anybody to come under a yoke. But not just agriculturally, this uh, phrase coming under a yoke can also be used about coming under the teaching of a rabbi, coming under the teaching of a rabbi who would describe their teaching as a yoke that a person would come under to learn from. I mean, Jesus wouldn't just come, he wouldn't say, come under a piece of wood. He must be talking about the analogy of a rabbi. Come under my teaching. Come and listen to what I've got to say, Matthew chapter five to seven, for starters. You don't just uh, yoke up an animal, though, to teach it something. You place a yoke upon it so it can work. So Jesus is saying two things. Learn from me, says Jesus, but also work for me. And here's what we need to learn from Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to learn that I'm gentle. and I want you to learn that I'm lowly. All of us are at the feet of something or someone who is teaching us subtly or not so subtly and shaping us very, definitive, very definitively. It could be a, a Twitter feed. It could be an Instagram wall that's shaping our values and our thoughts. It could be an author or a TV program or a people, a group or an influencer. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me and see the vision I've got for the world. I want to give you the privilege of playing a part in my kingdom project, in my mission for the world. And if you do that, you will not find yourself crushed or burdened. You will find rest. If you want to find joy and peace and security and satisfaction and purpose and a new identity, the only place you will find that is under the loving and gentle and kind yoke of King Jesus.
You won't find that yoke anywhere else. Everything else will be a burden. But Jesus is both strong and he is also kind. And you might be thinking, hang on, won't this burden just be, won't it be another thing to do? I mean, won't it be another thing to bear me down and to just slow me down? Jesus says no, and he tells us why. In Matthew 23, Jesus is describing the, the yoke, the teaching of the Pharisees. He desists, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. It's the very opposite. The reason you will find rest under my yoke is because my yoke for 30 is easy. My burden is light. That word easy means kind. There's a kindness to Jesus's words and teaching that as you read them, they work. Life works under the yoke and kind direction of Jesus because he's the king and he's kind. Why don't you come to him afresh today? Why don't you submit to him, perhaps for the, for the first time, or resubmit and recommit your life to him? And here's the great promise, better than any New Year's rev resolution. When you come to Jesus and submit to him, you will find and finally find rest for your souls.